Hello and welcome to The Beautiful Game, a series exploring personal improvement and resiliency through interviews with soccer coaches from around the world. Beautiful Game is brought to you by Weasels FC, a brand for the tenacious, quick-witted, and occasionally underestimated. I am your host, Tony Niccolo. Join me as we learn to live, work, and play better with more confidence, resilience, and success. So I'm here today with Mark Kerkorian, the head coach of women's soccer at Florida State University, who you've turned into a perennial powerhouse, two-time NCAA champion. But even before FSU, you've had a long career defined by winning. You turned Hartford into a contender and had two undefeated seasons and won Div 2 national championships with Franklin Pierce. You've also coached with the U.S. women's national team as a scout and at the U19 level at the World Cup. So welcome, Mark. Happy to have you here today. Well, geez, I sure appreciate the invitation and I look forward to having an opportunity to chat with you for a bit. So we get started by asking sort of a question that is about the producer of the Beautiful Game podcast, which is we're sponsored by Weasels FC. And so we like to know what you think about the animal, a weasel. <laughs> Sheesh. If they're sponsoring the show, then I have to be a big supporter of weasels. <laughs> I'm not sure that uh, if I'm to be honest with you that I had that feeling before the question, but at this point, I'll be a bigger fan of weasels. No, no, no. What do you really think of weasels? I'm not sure that I think about weasels very often, but um, uh, they're certainly uh, one of Mother Nature's creatures, and I'm sure that they play a, a significant role in our ecosystem, but I'm absolutely certain that I don't know enough about it. Very diplomatic, which makes sense with your, your degree in history and then uh, a master's in, in education. Did you always know that you wanted to be a coach? Yeah, you know, even early on when I was playing in college, I would go back and I would uh, coach, help my high school coach, uh, coach the high school kids. And then I grew up in New Hampshire, which is a really small soccer community, especially back in the 70s. And uh, he started to form one of the first clubs in the state of New Hampshire. And I was one of his coaches from the beginning. So I very much enjoyed it. Love seeing the, the light go on for the players as they were picking up different concepts and gaining success in their play. So I think the teaching and coaching have always been a part of what's important to me. John Mitchell was your high school coach who taught you about the game, took you to Europe. It was him. You went back and, and helped coach while you were the captain at, at St. Anselm under Ed Gannon. What about the mental side of the game? Did, did they teach you anything there? Well, you know, John Mitchell, the thing I took away from him was attention to detail. He was meticulous. He was looking at every aspect of performance way ahead of his time. He was looking at things that I had clearly never seen. And, you know, again, back in those days, we watched Soccer Made in Germany. That was the only broadcast or telecast that really showed soccer at all. And that would be on on the weekend in the morning and you'd get up and you'd uh, watch it. And then you'd get together and you'd talk about it with the guys on the team or with uh, John Mitchell. But he was so far ahead of everybody else because he was really studying the game. He, he wasn't a soccer player, never played soccer, uh, but he decided that he wanted to form a soccer team at the high school and he got the athletic director and the principal to do it. And there were enough of us that had interest in it. You know, my background was uh, I was a basketball player, a lacrosse player and a soccer player as well. So I was one of those three sport athletes back in the day. But for me, I, I fell in love. It was uh, wonderful trying to master the ball and 
you know, we had one kid on our team named Ziggy Troker that had grew up in New York and he was playing in the German American leagues and he could do things with the ball that were not imaginable to me. He was juggling the ball, he was flicking it up, catching it on his neck, spinning around, catching it on his foot and doing all these things that, you know, to, by today's standards, you see all of the, the kids doing all the tricks. But back then there wasn't any of that. And I would say to this again, hey, what's the trick? What's the, what's the, what's the trick? He'd say, you got to practice, got to practice. And, you know, John Mitchell would bring in drills that Brown University was doing and UConn was doing. And none of us had any clue about it. But, hey, what kind of drill is that? Well, he'd say, if it's good enough for UConn, it's good enough for us. Okay, that made good sense after a while. And it seems like there's a tendency for players who are captains of their team to end up being coaches or, or among the coaching ranks. What do you see with your own players who are the captains, your experience with other coaches? What lessons do you learn about leadership early that then sort of translate into continuing to lead later in life? You know, I think the leadership question is an absolutely great question. And it's something that when we look across the country, maybe looking across the world, that the really good leaders stand out very quickly. There's no question that when you have one in your team, you're really lucky. At Florida State, we've had a number of really good leaders. Some are ones that will sacrifice anything that, that they have for the betterment of the team. Some are leading by example. Some are leading the emotional leader of the team. But I think that all of them share a common quality in that they'll put winning above their own personal glory. And I think that that's, for me, uh, the greatest quality that a leader can show. It's, you know, well, you may be call yourself the captain, and we've seen all kinds of kids that want to be the captain, but they're not willing to make the sacrifices to be a true captain. They just want the title of captain, where some of the kids that we've had, I've looked at them and said, they could care less if they score a goal, they could care less if they save the winning goal, but if they do their role and they make everyone else around them better, then they've served the team very well. And for me, that's an important quality for a captain. And, and is that, that quality, can it be cultivated or is it just natural? I think that part of it is natural, but certainly it's our job as coaches to try and cultivate that and bring them along and teach and expose them uh, to, to other leaders that maybe have come before them or all of us at the college level have a lot of resources at our disposal and some are on-campus resources working with uh, some of the different student areas. Sometimes there are speakers that are available coming in. Sometimes there are different groups or outfits that come in and make presentations uh, to teams all of which can give different messages, but there's a lot of different styles of leadership, but I think that we can really foster that and bring out those qualities in the kids. But I think it has to have a foundation. I think there are some kids that just, that just aren't going to be a great leader. And so how do you cultivate those leadership qualities, the habit of sacrifice that you talk about so many great leaders having, how do you cultivate those habits? Well, I think part of it is, uh, for me, I, I do tend to to read a little bit and do like to uh, read about different leadership uh, models and, and things. And uh, with me and my staff, we are presenting different books to the players to let them have a look at them and try and see some different uh, sacrifice. I think I, I'm sure that at some point you've come across the All Blacks. That's something that we've presented to our, our kids and said, hey, why don't you take a look at this and see how it is and what their attention to detail is, sweeping up the locker room and you know leaving things better than the way that they found it. 
we share with the team a book, The Five Dysfunctions of a Team, and it talks about a different leadership model. It's a great story about Silicon Valley and, and talking about a leader coming in and finding that they have a team of people that are exceptional at what it is that they do, but they're a terrible team and they're dysfunctional as can be. It takes them through some of the challenges uh, that are out there and helping them to learn how to manage and manipulate the situation, how to use conflict as a positive tool to bring people along. So for us, it's through uh, books and through uh, different uh, leadership models and different folks that uh, are out there and available to us that, uh, that are willing to share time with us. So talk about sort of managing uh, a group that are excellent at their individual positions or skills, but maybe have, have difficulty as a team. You are the coach of a, a very global team. To use a specific example, how do you use the things that you read about and, and your own skills? How do you navigate the cultural differences amongst the team as maybe one examples of the possible dysfunctions? A lot of people are curious about that because we probably have as diverse a team as anyone in all of college sport, kids coming from all over the world. But we, we have a whole lot more in common than we have different. So our Chinese player, Yu Zhao, for example, she cares about her education. She cares about pleasing people. She cares about training and developing into being the best player she can. She's not shy about working hard. So all of those characteristics are the same that I could use with Jalen Howell, who's a top American kid. Or, you know, we have a new player from Sweden that's in, and she has similar qualities and similar attributes. So I think for, for me, making sure that everyone understands the common ground that we have, and then the most important thing for me is to be a very good communicator. I need to make sure that my messages are clear and they're concise and precise as well when I'm talking with them about uh, whether it's soccer or my expectations in the classroom or in the community or, or whatever it is. So I think that all of us want guidance and we want direction and we want to know what the path is. And I think that that's a strength that I need to have for us to be successful. Uh, a clear view of what the goals are and how we're going to attain those. And with such a global team, you've mentioned some of the things that you look for in terms of being a talented player, a committed student, a good person. How do you recruit globally? Are there heuristics that you use to sort of identify those qualities quickly? What does it look like? Yeah, so first is finding the kids that are talented enough, right? And there aren't that many that are out there that are kids that we're really looking at and saying that this is a kid that uh, we need to have on our team. But when we do identify those players, being a good player is only the first part. Then the question is, well, how serious are you about your academics? And in most parts of the world, most of the women's soccer players are pretty serious about their academics. They do want to do a good job in their studies. They are interested in the university degree. They are interested in a career post-soccer. So I think finding that piece is, is not difficult either. But then the question comes down to what kind of character do you have? And that's where Probably the the network that I've established over the years of being able to get straight answers from a lot of friends or former players or, or national team coaches that I've known for a long time probably comes in really handy. And you know, we feel very fortunate that the fabric of our team has stayed consistent. It's always been you know a technical team, a hardworking team, a disciplined team, an organized team. But all that starts with making sure that we have the right kids. And I think all of our kids are pulling in the same direction. And you know, one of our kids that just graduated, uh, Dana Castellanos, a uh, Venezuelan player, 
you know, she had 1.3 million Instagram followers. So who has 1.3 million Instagram? She had a celebrity like no kid in college sport, in any sport ever. I mean, our best football player at uh, Florida State, I think they have 20,000 Twitter, Instagram followers, and she had 1.3 million. So managing Dana and helping her to understand what it is to be a great teammate and managing her celebrity is a different animal than managing most of the women's soccer players. But fortunately, she was extremely bright, she was extremely humble, and she wanted to be a good teammate. So it was a situation where it made it so that maybe it was a little easier than it could have been. But those different uh, situations, I'm sure every coach in the country and every sport in the country has different managerial challenges. And for us, that could have been a real big one. But because of Dana's maturity, it worked out pretty well for us. And uh, Dana is now at Atletico Madrid. Is the USC a difference in mentality between players like Dana who end up playing professionally versus people who don't make it at the professional level? Most of the kids who come through our program uh, have an opportunity to go and play as pros. Now, some of them, it may not be at Atletico Madrid, but we've had a number of go and play at Bayern Munich, Liverpool. You know, you look around the world, we have Man City. Uh, there are others in the, the, the Women's Premier League, some in the Auslandskan of Sweden and uh, in the Norwegian League and so on. So I think most of the kids that are coming through our program are doing it with the intent of trying to play for their national team, whether it's U.S. or, or abroad, as well as having an opportunity to play post-college uh, in some sort of a professional environment, at least for a little bit of time. You know, some kids, it's uh, a year or two. Other kids, Tony Presley, Carson Pickett, Casey Short. I mean, we have a bunch of them that are now going on being seven, eight, nine, ten-year professional players. And there's a discussion that's happening now. Some players are you starting to see are skipping college and going straight to professional level, like you often see at the, the top level of the of the men's game. So two questions. One is sort of what do you do to prepare players for life beyond soccer that helps them develop into professional players. And also we hear from coaches at the professional level that there's a big gap between even the top college players and what the requirements are at the professional level, because you don't have the support structure that exists in the university environment. So talk a little bit about what you do at the university level to help people prepare, not just as soccer players, but in general, to get them ready to keep improving and, and take on more responsibility? I think one of the things we're really proud of at Florida State is that when our kids leave us and graduate and go on, the comments that we get from most of the NWSL coaches is that our kids are as prepared to be pros as anyone out there, that you know, we've put them through a different sort of uh, education through video use, through the strength and conditioning people, the discipline that we're asking of them. And again, part of that, I think, also is, you know, my background prior to coming to Florida State was, you know, I worked with the, the youth national team, the United national team. But before that, I coached in the first U.S. Women's Pro League, the WSA, for three years and have a pretty good understanding of what it takes to be a full pro. I think that we train our kids like pros. And when that time comes for them to move on, I think that they're as ready as they can be. The other side of your question, asking about kids going directly from high school into the pros, well, for the right kid, that one in a million kid, it's probably the right thing. But I would say at the end of the day, history would probably show that most kids are better served to get an education and to grow and gain in college 
you know, I think a lot of the socialization and the growth that goes on off the field is really important for those kids when they become pros as well. So I look at it as a holistic approach and certainly the education, the degree, but also that growth as a person and having the opportunity. And boy, I'll tell you what, when I look at our U.S. national team and see all those top level players that have all gone through the, the college system, they still seem to still be doing pretty well. You talk about sort of running a professional environment and some of the tools that you use. One of the tools you've used is this organization called The Program that helps teach lessons from elite military units. My understanding of the program is that they they do some exercises around shared adversity to try and bring a group together. And you've talked about talent as requiring thinking players. You know, something that's big at Florida State is that unconquered mentality, that drive to succeed and character being really important where they're willing to put in the consistent effort. When you use something like the program, how exactly does it work? What do you learn? What do your players learn? And then how do you apply it over the course of a season? You know, that's a great question. And when you asked me earlier about leadership, that was one of the areas I was referencing, the type of different leadership that they bring in. In 2013, we lost the national final to UCLA in overtime, and they were better than we were. And they deserved to win. And, you know, we were a good team. We were finalists, uh, but we were missing something. There was something in our in our group where we kind of looked at our team and thought, we have good players, but there's an element in our play that's not quite quite right. We need to shake the team up and change the, the formatting. I've been at Florida State now 15 years, and we've been to nine Final Fours. Unfortunately, we've won twice. But for me, when I looked at 2013, as I said, UCLA was better than we were. But I also thought, you know, we still could have won that game. It was a one nothing game and uh, an overtime golden goal. And with maybe a little different mentality or a little bit uh, different approach, we could have won. So we brought the program in and they reshaped the view of the players. They taught them a little bit about, I'm not a yeller and screamer. I'm not getting your face. I'm much more about uh, uh, standing there and talking with a player and looking at things more a thinking way as opposed to an emotional way where the program came in and they kind of rattled all the kids' cages and they made it very difficult for them. And the shared adversity that you spoke of, the players felt that. And we felt from the time they left our campus that they had made a great impression in our team. And with that being said, we turned around and we won the national championship in 2014. I'm not sure that we were any better in uh, 14 than 13. I'm not sure we were better in 14 or 15. May, I think maybe 15 was our best year, but they came in and they worked with us. And then we brought them back again. And it just so happened that we brought them back the year that in 2018 we won the national championship. They were with us just before that. So whether it is the idea of this shared adversity and um, reemphasizing uh, what they brought to the table, I thought that they brought a different dynamic to our team. And, you know, again, for me, I try to be open-minded. I try and look at all of the different elements. We also have another gentleman who works with our team named Steve Shenbaum, probably not as in the college ranks, not as well known. But uh, Steve comes in and works with our team once a month, and he talks with our team about all kinds of different elements. And a lot of it is about how to be a good teammate and how to read each other and read off of each other and talking about when you're in a group, you don't want to be the kid that's loud and obnoxious and everyone walks away from, or you don't want to be the, the wallflower that's over in the corner. You want to be somewhere in the middle. And he's teaching them about how to be good teammates. And, you know, so it's kind of a really interesting balance because when you look at the program, 
there is physical activity. It is physically exhausting and challenging and physical shared adversity and mental shared adversity. Where Steve comes in and he deals with a completely different approach. His is much more analytical. It's much more about thinking, but it's through laughter. It's through fun. And, you know, for me, I think both of them are really important to our team. And as I said, we bring Steve in once a month through the course of the season. And I think his influence in our team is every bit as strong as the program as well. And so it's really having both of those elements where you've got a difficult challenge to face as a team, but you also need the social bonds to be able to face that challenge. Yeah, exactly. Teaching our kids what great communication methods would be in order to achieve whatever the desired goal is. So, you know, you're going to be, when you're with the program, you're out there physically exhausted and you're fighting through the the physical fatigue that happens in a game. But the other part of that is if you learn the communicative skills on how it is that you can get each other to do what you need through what Steve Schenbaum is teaching, then probably all of the elements of communication, the team work better. And so in 2018, the year that national championship, you won your second one, you had to bring a lot of those lessons to bear. You had to change the game plan frequently at 14 different starting lineups over the course of that season. And then I think it was the, the semifinals where you beat Stanford in a tough game and had to, to build the team back up again and explain to them, We didn't come here to beat Stanford. We came to win the national championship. So not only over the course of the season, but even in between the semifinal and the final, how do you get people to sustain the the level of effort required to succeed? You know, we had a really mixed season that year through the course of the ACC schedule. It was a tough season for us. We had so many players called away for national team duty through the course of the season. It was you know, one's in, one's out, uh, you know, one's with the senior team, one's with the youth team and, you know, missing kids to start the season with the U-20 World Cup. And as soon as they came back, there was a senior call up and those kids were gone. So I give my staff a great deal of credit for really managing everyone to the end. We kind of looked at it. We knew that there were going to be bumps in the road and ups and downs, but we needed to keep our eye on the target. The target was the NCAA tournament. And knowing that through the course of the season, we would have to rest some kids and we may take a loss or a draw that we would probably prefer to win the game, of course. But we looked at it and uh, we were willing to accept that looking at the bigger picture. But this idea of trying to maintain the elite level game after game after game, when we got into the ACC tournament, we knew that that was the most important moment for us at that point. We needed to show well in the ACC tournament to get a high national seed that would allow us to play at home through the NCAA tournament and then prepare for the draw. And I have to say Stanford was as good of a team as maybe we've ever played against since I've been at Florida State. Uh, Some of the early Carolina teams and even more recent Carolina teams have been fantastic. But the Stanford team in the last couple of years has just been a, a great team. We needed a near perfect performance to beat Stanford on that day and we got it. And then to turn around and have to uh, play against Carolina with all of their wonderful tradition and history and wonderful players and stuff and and have to find a way to win that day. That was a big challenge. You mentioned Carolina. You've beaten them more than any other team has. But Anson Dorrance tells a story. You used to go to a parent-teacher conference. The kid got poor grades. The parents would come home. They'd yell at the kids. That's changed now that... If that happens, the parents yelling at the teacher, wondering what's going on. 
have you seen a, a change in mentality of players and, and how do you get players and their family on side to put in all of the effort and go through the, the experience that you put them through? You know, Tony, I don't think with the kids that we are recruiting that we're having a whole lot of issue with that. When we bring them in and we recruit and we explain to them the way the environment's going to work and the way that we're going to do our business and that this is your kid's experience. It's not your experience. And we're going to deal directly with the kid. And, you know, if the kid is in some sort of physical danger, then, okay, by all means, uh, I'm willing to listen to, to what the parent has to say. But 99.999% of the time, I'm not dealing with parents. The message that we try and give to our players is, look, your parents love you. They're your folks. But they're not here at practice every day. They don't see what's going on. If you have a question about playing time, if you have a question about something that's going on, come in and ask me. I'm the only one that's going to talk to you about playing time. You can go to your teammates. You can talk to your teammates all you want to about, oh, how come I'm not playing? How come I'm not playing? And your teammates are going to support you because they're your teammates and they're friends. If you want the real answer, walk in and ask me. Now, you may not like the answer you get, but you're going to get an honest answer. And I think that, as I said to you earlier, I need to communicate very clearly with these kids and uh, make sure that they understand where they stand on all of the elements, including playing time, because they all want to play. They're all stars coming out of high school, and they all want to continue to be stars. So I do think that uh, when I look across the country and my own children that are 19 and 17, I hear what you're saying, but uh, in the environment we have, I'm not feeling as though there's any direct, you know, I don't have direct contact with the, with the parents about it, but I'm sure that in the background that the parents are suggesting to their, their children they should be playing more, and sometimes it can be harder on the kids. In the university environment, with a very successful program, how do you balance winning with development, not only as soccer players, but in the university environment as humans, how do you balance those goals? I think that that's the biggest part of our job. I mean, all of us want to win. At the end of the day, everyone gets into to athletics because they want to win. But the bigger part for me is, have we helped these kids grow? Have we helped them realize their dreams or work toward their dreams, whether it be on the field, off the field, in the classroom, academically? You know, I'm getting messages from my, my former players all the time. Can you write me a letter of recommendation? Now I'm ready to go to med school. Now I want to be an attorney. Now I want to do this. And for me, those are the best things, right? So the kids reaching back out. Besides, after we win big games, hearing from them, congrats. I know the stakes of the games. When we play the University of Florida, the in-state rivalry is huge. After the game, my phone's blown up from all the alums reaching back out saying congrats when we win. Or, But I think from my point of view, seeing them go on, my wife and I going to their weddings, um, you know, getting notices of them having children. Those are the parts as I've aged as a coach now that I look at and think uh, I'm glad that we've been able to play a hand in their lives and, and help them to, to shape and, and develop them into well-rounded and great people. I'm pleased to hear you say that because it confirms a suspicion that I had just from, if you follow you on Twitter, M. Krikorian FSU, I get the impression that it's it's very clear that you're proud of the university and you're happy when you win, but you're especially proud of your players. You know, when they get national team call-ups or they sign a, a new professional contract or they transfer somewhere. We're recording this on April 3rd, obviously difficult times in the world with the COVID pandemic. You're a historian, a history teacher, reader, study leadership. What are you saying to your players and, and alumni now about what's going on in the world and how they should cope with it? 
I think we've talked about this is a really uncertain time that none of us have the magic formula for how long all this is going to, to go on, nor do we have any idea how bad it's going to get. Like you, we're all watching the news. We're all paying attention to the spread and the curve, all of these words that are going to be known for this time in history at, at some point. But you know, the message that we've given our kids is stay safe. At the end of the day, the training is the training, but stay safe. Make sure that you're in an environment where you're very comfortable. Yesterday, I had a, a phone call. We, we have an Irish player on our team, Heather Payne. And uh, last night, I was on the phone with her mom for probably an hour because Heather is uh, still in Tallahassee and she's at her apartment and, and so on. And the mother is talking about, well, should we bring her home and discussing it? And what I've said to her is, you have my support. Whatever it is that you feel is best for your daughter, you're going to have my support and the university's support. But none of us know, right? I mean, all of us right now is going to be as big of a period of uncertainty for all of us as, as exists. And what we have to do is just follow the guidelines that are presented themselves and do everything that we can for a bigger picture, right? Now, it's not just about sporting or any, anything along those lines now. This is about people dying. So, you know, if you put yourself into a situation, we have my, my wife's 88-year-old mom is here staying with us. And, you know, if my daughter or son or I leave here and do we come across uh, the virus and we infect her, we know the odds aren't great for her surviving. So the same message has been sent to the players. We know that you're young and you're healthy, but understand there are a lot of people that have different ailments that you could not wantfully, but you, you could expose them if you're not really careful with what you're doing and where you're going. So we know there would be no malice and there'd be no intent, but at the end of the day, make sure that every decision you make with where you're going and what you're doing is with other people in mind. Mm -hmm. We'll wrap up with a, I was watching some of the FSU soccer senior series videos and one that stood out to me was Natalia Kuika. She really talked about what she loved about her experience at the university was that you gave her the opportunity to change. And so what I want to know is when you think about your own work, how do you evaluate it to make sure that you're continuously improving so that the program keeps succeeding? Yeah, that's a great question, Tony. I, I will say that probably the of all of the different good and bad qualities that I have as both a person and as a coach, probably the best quality that I have is I'm a flexible thinker. I'll look into different things, different scenarios. Just because something's worked for us in the past doesn't mean we're going to continue to do it in that fashion. Probably the best example I can give to you in the most recent times for us is really integrating analytics into our team and into our program. You know, four or five years ago, we had some, but very, very minor. Now we have performance analysts. We're looking at anything and everything, uh, breaking down every element that you could possibly imagine we're now looking at. And again, at the end of the day, the craft of coaching is still trusting your gut. But we are still now looking at some of these. Let's, let's look. If uh, 99 out of 100 times the player that you're playing against wants to cross the ball with their right foot, well, maybe we should take the right foot away and make them kick the ball with their left foot. I mean, that's obviously a very simplistic example of it. But I mean, there's a lot to be learned by what the numbers show, and I'm all for it. And again, probably four or five years ago, hadn't thought much about it, but as it's become more in the forefront of, of all of soccer and all of sport, we have delved very deeply into it. Well, I think that sort of combined with your previous answer, the time that we're living in shows us that we, we need to be adaptable and that that's sort of table stakes for improvement. Thanks so much, Mark. Great to chat with you today. 
Well, it's a pleasure. I hope that you and your family stay safe and I look forward to hopefully meeting you face-to-face in person at some point here. Thank you for joining us today on The Beautiful Game. We hope you also have some new ideas and inspiration to live, work, and play better. Please subscribe to get future episodes. And you can join the conversation with your host, Tony Niccolo, on Twitter at WeaselsFC. FC.